joining us on Coffee with Curators. This would be episode five, making it the equivalent to Empire Strikes Back in Star Wars terms. I am Meg Weston, the assistant curator at Ruby's Artspace. With me, I have my head curator, Brooke Mercy, uh, and we represent Riverview's Artspace, a nonprofit arts organization in downtown Lynchburg, dedicated to exhibiting contemporary art in our art galleries and making contemporary art accessible within our community. We use this podcast to connect with our exhibiting artists and have a chat that may go on beyond what you may see in the gallery. The 12th annual Juried Art Show is one that we do every year. Uh, It's been three years now that we've expanded beyond Virginia artists to include national artists for the applications. Uh, We have today with us the first, second, third place winners of this art show that was selected by Jeffrey Cudlin, who is the professor in curatorial studies at MICA. Uh, you can find his Jura talk on our website or on the Reviews Artspace YouTube channel. Our first place winner is Lake Newton. Our second place winner is Sean C. Whiteside. And our third place is Delise Blanchard. Uh, so I have an icebreaker game called The Percolator because our podcast is coffee themed. Uh, and each of you can answer this, these two questions. Uh, what is your go-to coffee substitute or your favorite way to have your coffee. I know that some people don't drink coffee. Uh, anyone want to go first? Um, I'm, I'm not really a coffee drinker, um, but I'll, I'll have a generic uh, Food Lion brand uh, diet Mountain Lion every day. That's my caffeine jolt. Oh, oh, Sean. Oh, oh you, are, you are of my kin. I drink, yeah. I drink Diet Mountain Dew, which is, which is not even legal in Europe. They don't even sell it there. So, so you and I will be preserved for longevity. Yeah, we can smuggle some to Europe. We can. I'm a tea, a tea drinker, so my favorite tea is an Earl Grey tea. Yes. <laughs> okay, Delete. Now, do you put milk uh, in that milk, uh, honey uh, sweetener? I do not when it's when I'm home. But if I am drinking at a, you know, at a tea shop, I will put whatever they bring out. I like to, you know, try it in different ways. Excellent. Black tea. Yep. Black tea. Black tea. Oh my gosh, from the fresh market, it looks like. It only costs $10. Oh, only $10. That's a bargain there. Yeah, I know. Since none of you answered coffee, what is your favorite pairing with your beverage of choice? Because it was going to be your favorite coffee pairing. But oh my goodness. What do you pair with those teas and that diet mountain lion? <laughs> I, I usually have it with my lunch, which is uh, like a kind of lettuce salad wrap thing that I do. Oh, so you try to make up for the, the diet mountain lion with a salad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Well, you know, it's diet, so that means it's good for you, right? That's right. Silly me. It has yeah. all of your essential vitamins and minerals. In there. Uh, chocked full of vitamin green. Vitamin green. Mm -hmm. Oh, I probably have a cookie. I, I like those. Um, you seen those Dewey's cookies in Fresh Market? They're actually they're actually made in Winston Salem, and they're they're very thin. Those are so good. Yeah, yeah, a lot of flavor, not very big. Oh, oh dear Lake, if you you're gonna have to go to Fresh Market and pick some of those up. <laughs> we'll do, we'll do. <laughs> Banana, that's what goes with my tape. <laughs> I didn't know we were required to have visual aids here. I feel unprepared. Uh, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> not when it's an audio podcast. Visual aids don't give you any extra points. Sorry, Lake. <laughs> um, so I will move on into some questions. Uh, Lake, since uh, Delise and Sean, they kind of are usual suspects in our calls for entry and just seeing them around town. Uh, so how did you find the call for our jury show and what made you want to enter it? I, I don't remember how what platform I found it on, but I, I usually break it down into two or three components. First, I look at who the curator is. And since I've lived in Baltimore for a number of years, I'm very familiar with MICA and its kind of and its role and impact, especially within the art world in that city, but also in larger contexts. And so I did a little research on him. And so that's one positive. Um, second is usually the institution itself. And so I just did a little bit of, you know, viewing of uh, Riverview's space, um, past exhibitions. I mean, and the third's kind of like a town, if I'm actually interested in the city. Um, and if it's a place, I, I, I had the opportunity, was it a week and a half ago, to come visit the exhibition over yeah. kind of a, a pre-Thanksgiving visit, um, seeing my, my brother in eastern Tennessee, so did an extra few hours to Lynchburg. So it's really those three components. It's the curator, the space, and then if the, the city is something that might give me the opportunity, you know, to go visit even even in these COVID times. So but that was my thinking about it. Very cool. Fantastic. I was sorry, Lake, that I didn't um, get to meet you when you came here. Meg said that yeah. you were coming and I was having one of those moments where I had been around so many students face to face the week before that I actually just kind of isolated for a little while. It was just kind of, I'd just been around too many people to, I was like, I need to, I need to stay away. Yeah. Well, I, had, I had a lovely visit. I thought the exhibition was really well put together. Um, the space is beautiful. And I, I really fell for Lynchburg as, as, a, as a city. I, I, beautiful place to walk around and the architecture and the history um, and, and the region that's so it was a lovely visit. I'm, I'm very happy that I came and got to experience the exhibition, the town, the region, for sure. Oh, excellent, excellent. Well, we're, uh, I, I again apologize for not, uh, <laughs> I just felt infected. I don't know. It was like, it was one of those weeks where, you know, technically I was only allowed to see my students once a week, but I ended up having to go pretty much every day. And so I was just like, blah. Um, so, uh, first question, Lake, um, first I had the question of, is the, the, the piece that won was Remnant One, 
in, in the exhibition. And I assume going through your website that this was part of the On the Surface uh, series. Yes. yes. Okay. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about your process and, and then the process that you use um, for this series. And also, this is my own fascination with objects. If you could talk a little about, about objects as objects, but also objects as signifiers. Yeah, 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 yeah. So for that series, um, most of the, the objects are collected. Um, I'm, I'm also a, a, a camera photographer. Um, so I, I kind of, my, my practice is broken up into a lot of different directions. But primarily, uh, it's photographic based. And in that process, I'm, I'm often moving around, exploring different areas, on long walks. Um, and to complement those actions, um, I'm often collecting materials, um, objects that kind of serve as signifiers or signs of, of human communication or existence or passing. Um, and so those, I'll live with those objects for a while, and if they kind of permeate or possess some kind of resonance, then, then I'll start to actually work with them. And that process is done with a flatbed scanner. Um, so I'll take, a, take an object that must fit within, say, 11 by 14 inch you know, rectangular space, and then you know, test out different backings for the objects. And, and what the scanner does, more than a photographic image, is, is it puts so much information into the actual object, um, not only for scaling up the work, but just the artifacts of the surface of those materials, um, or, or it, it's, it's actually a lot more accurate than what the human eye can see. Um, and then so I'll work on the digital files and live with those for a while, and if they continue to kind of resonate as images, um, and if those objects, you know, kind of feeling it to your second question, I, if the objects possess some kind of memory, um, and, and I don't mean that just as like a human memory or whatnot, but they possess some kind of resonance, some kind of um, essence to them that, that traces them back to, I, I guess, traces them back to a past. Um, that's something that fascinates me. So the object itself has to go through several iterations in order to make it to that final stage where I think it has potentiality and it actually succeeds in, in kind of having a message to it. Mm -hmm. Oh, fantastic. Um, do you have any criteria on your objects or is it just something that catches your eye? I, mm, again, it, it needs to have some kind of connectivity to a human action. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it and it needs to be it needs to have a history. Okay, so example that that the object remnant one is an old paper cup and it has this text on it, but it's beaten down, it's worn, it's stained, it's scarred or whatnot. Now, if that object were brand new, just thrown out of a window, it possesses no interest to me at all. So it's gone through kind of a, a process of existence. Um, it had it's aged, it's wear, you know, um, it has experience. So I, I think that's an important component, at least to catch my eye and to catch my interest at first. It can't be fresh and new and, and uh, immediately recognizable or, you know, have kind of advertisement on it that uh, associates it with specific other things. It needs to be neutral in a way so it can have a broader application. Mm -hmm. it, yeah, it needs that history behind it. 
Do you find your objects while you're working with them? Do you have the, a little bit of the uh, wabi-sabi kind of theory in there? Um, do you find your objects beautiful? Because these objects in which you're using are often ones that we walk by and do not look at twice. I think the, the transformation of them creates kind of an aesthetic beauty. I think in and of it's funny, someone asked me, um, I had a, a show with a number of the uh, images from that series, and they go, oh, I think it'd be really interesting if you brought in the objects. The objects in and of themselves, when you put them, are, are fairly banal. Um, they don't really, re like if you put that next to a large, you know, 36 by 36 print, it's, it's fairly meek, it's quiet. Um, it, it doesn't possess, by translating it and transferring it, you're actually adding a secondary life to that object and you're enhancing it, you're dramatizing it. So it wouldn't be of any interest to add this little, you know, four by four inch paper cup that just looks like a kind of worn out piece of trash. <laughs> But the process of art making is also about elevating things almost above their actual potential. That's, that's part of my thinking of it. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Now, I wanted to just ask you a, a question about um, the second piece that you have in the show um, as well. And that's from the Chroma series. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Okay. I love the title. Thank you. <laughs> um, I was like, that is so clever. So I was wondering if, if you could define the term of the title for people who aren't aware of it, because it is not a word in which you come across very often. Yeah. Um, oh, Lordy. <laughs> you didn't think that you were going to have to pronounce it, did you? Ebiotico. Ebiotico. Uh, I'm just, yeah, I need one of my Spanish-speaking friends to, to come in. Um, if I can, I, I, I kind of like not defining it. If, if that's okay, if I can skirt my way out of that. Yeah, I, I kind of, what I like about that title, and it took me a while to get to that point, I had the image for a while, and I, you know, it needed some kind of resonance. Um, with, and, and titles are really difficult for me. I, I, I find them, you know, I mean, if you, if you have 30 objects to come up with 30 unique titles is, you know, a level of fabrication that I'm not that confident at. Um, so for that one, I actually like people to have to look it up and then to and to kind of spin it in their own head. So I'm going to defer on that question. Okay. <laughs> because because usually if you, if you do see it, it's it's um, abiot abiotic. You know, it's yes. it's, it's, yes. it's the yes. O we're talking yes. is a you know is the the Spanish translation. It just yeah, it's so, it's a much more lovely word. It is a much more lovely word. You add that, it's kind of a flare on the end. Yes. And I was like, yes. oh, I, I, I thought. <laughs> I thought of the English word first, and then it resonated. But I go, it's such a flat word; it, it has no, it has no poetry to it. So, that, yes. Yeah, you, you, I, I just, I just that that just really um, took me. It was me. slightly performative in the regards to like creating a title for something. I wanted to have a slight performative element to it. I know. I mean, you can barely <laughs> even say it without like making a hand gesture. <laughs> uh, I think it's marvelous. Okay. Um, I also saw, uh, was looking at your objects in mirror or closer than they appear uh, series mm -hmm. of uh, rubber gloves. And I actually really was taken with the project. And, um, and as we, I think as we kind of move into the future, we're going to see the more and more artwork related to the pandemic and what artists have been going through. Um, and so I love that, that you're one of the first people that have actually seen pandemic work. 
from. Yeah. I, I'm expecting to see a lot of pandemic work, but you're the first person. I mean, a lot of us are talking about it. A lot of us aren't actually, you know, don't have it out there yet. And you actually have this out there. Could you talk a little bit about um, that series? Uh, you know, and then are you going to do any more series that are reflective of the times in which we're living right now? Uh, good question. Um, well, that series came about, you know, so I live in Memphis, Tennessee right now. And, you know, like everywhere else in, in March, things really shut down. Um, you know, streets were empty. You know, you could kind of, things felt kind of desolate. Things felt, you know, things were very insecure at that time you know, because people were, had questions about, you know, the severity of this virus. People just didn't, there were no answers at the time. Nonetheless, I, I kind of started thinking about, about, you know, developing, you know, I was locked into my studio just like everybody else and started to think that I really need to focus in on something that addresses to some degree both my aesthetic interest as well as the environment around me. And so it happened to be that I was on a bike ride one day and some guy was selling, you know, kind of boxes of gloves on the street just trying to make a buck. And so I bought them, um, lived with them for a little while, and then I, I started to realize that they had kind of a resonance, they had a, a potentiality. Um, again, to meet both the times, you know, as well as my particular approach to art making. Um, and so I just started, I, I took them all out. Let's say there's 150 gloves in there and just started smashing them against um, the flatbed scanner and doing different iterations of them. And I realized that, that material in and of itself also translates so beautifully um, on a flatbed scanner and all the grooves and nuances, the folds um, and the plastic material and certain kind of shifts and hue that it makes, very subtle. Um, and, and it, and, but also the idea of the title is that, is that we're all kind of forced into the situation. I think the work is actually very suffocating as well because I, I think there, there's, there's condensed into this. And I, and I don't know, I, I think that's more a perception of where we are mentally as a people. I think we're really confined, we're really tense, we're, you know, we're really unsure of ex exactly what's going on were worn out. Um, and I think that the aesthetics of the work kind of is hopefully reflects some of that, but without being overly intentional. I don't like anything that, that goes from A to B quickly. Um, this is, I'm talking about this. I like to talk about a lot of things at once, if I can, as, as an artist, um, but also to, for that project, to nudge it in the direction of what we're kind of going through and some of the materials that are reflective of the environment in which we live. Great. Are you going to do any other series kind of based on the living within a pandemic? Well, I mean, I'm working on, if you can see like this big piece right here. Um, it's a, I collected topographical maps of an area in Mississippi where all my family comes from. So I, I'm, I think I'm dealing a lot with territory right now um, in the sense that territory is very different. I mean, the experience of moving around right now has a, is completely altered than it was, say, in January or February. We, we are present in a different way than, you know, at this moment than we were six months ago. Um, we don't move through space in the same way that we used to. So I think this idea of, of mapping, and this is a new series, without thinking about the COVID, but I'm, I'm thinking about territory and space and moving through it and how dynamics have shifted and how things are abstracted now. Um, so I, I think th there's... I think we've all, as artists, kind of shifted our perspective and, and things are coming into our work, whether we're, you know, cognizant of it or not, that are a 
that are resultant um, from the way we live now. So if that makes sense. Oh yes, absolutely. Very much so. All right. Well, one more question before I move on to Sean. What's some artists that you have some inspiration from? Is it more than just the objects? Like where, where do you find your inspiration? Yeah. Um, uh, okay. Um, like I'm working on a, a, a series right now. It's a, it's a sculptural project and it's, it's kind of new territory for me. And the quick backstory is um, there's a small town called Money, Mississippi. And that's actually named after my great, great, great grandfather, a guy named Hernando de Soto Money, um, who was a US Senator back in the 1880s. And I was um, driving through there a couple of months ago and I realized there's a, a place called Bryant's Grocery Store that used to be there. It's in ruins now. And that's, that's actually where, if you guys know the story of Emmett Till, where he mm -hmm. supposedly whistled at the woman and then two days later was dragged out of his house and you know beaten and murdered and that was kind of the impetus for a lot of the civil rights movement getting to my point so i started based on that connection that, that this is it happened in the name where my grandfather was you know named after my great 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 grandfather i started going down there about once a week and collecting bricks and i and that is kind of and i'm going to make a, a, a kind of sculptural installation with those materials. Mm. I won't go way into it, but I, I think of artists like Ai Weiwei, who collected materials after the Sichuan earthquakes and kind of reconfigured those to express, you know, um, through a material object, um, a, a terrible situation. The Vietnamese American artist Don Vo does a lot of that, mm. where he appropriates mm -hmm. objects to create kind of, that have resonance, kind of like the, the scan objects that I do. Um, so, I, I'm really moving in that direction of artists who are utilizing materials that pre-exist to some degree, yet have a have a connectivity to other ideas, to other experiences, to other situations, um, and to translate in more kind of a conceptual way uh, stories, ideas, thoughts, um, and not just objects themselves. Great, thank you. Ooh, Ooh fantastic! Thank you, Lake. Ooh, thank you all. Appreciate the time. I could just keep yakking. That's my problem. Meg is always like, Brooke, stop rambling. I'm like, oh, okay, focus, focus. Because I could talk to all of you all day. It would be, and, and, you know, we have to put up the Christmas lights here. So. We do, yes. We do. We have to do that. Um, so, Sean, yes. my first, first question for you. Uh, you work in the tradition of abstract expressionism. Could you explain what that means to you? Um, I wouldn't classify myself as an abstract expressionist, but that's the movement that I find most influential. And there are, are a lot of things that, that people don't usually understand about abstract expressionism. It does tend to be very challenging for people, but um, there's a, a sense of spontaneity involved um, that kind of emerged from surrealism. Um, you know, Robert Motherwell said that abstract expressionism should have been called abstract surrealism because there was that same focus on uh, the spontaneity. There's an element of unpredictability that, you know, again, was something that abstract expressionism inherited from surrealism, which they inherited from the Dada art movement. So. I really see a direct lineage there between those three movements. Um, so the spontaneity, the unpredictability, 
Um, and particularly with, with abstract expressionism, there is a, a certain sense of pessimism. Um, this movement emerged right after World War II when you know Europe was just in ruins and we saw the, the horrors of humanity, um, you know, the depths of the inhumanity of the, the Nazis, for instance, and um, widespread targeting of civilians during that war, um, the dropping of atomic weapons. Um, and especially when you consider that many of those artists uh, of the abstract expressionist movement were Jewish, you know, that did have a big effect on them, obviously. So I think that, you know, to me, again, it's that, that there's a spontaneity to it. There's a, that pessimism the unpredictability and the, the kind of desire to uh, portray something that's a, a very simple, you know, uh, um, format, okay, very simple in its appearance, but still illustrating a complex thought or a complex idea. Yes, how do you, uh, how do you interpret Rosenberg's um, term, action painter? Is, is how do, you, how do you interpret that? Um, I think when we're talking about action painting, and I'm not sure I, I quite fit into that quite as much, but when we're talking about action painting, that's where the act of painting itself becomes part of the subject matter. So if you're looking at a piece by Jackson Pollock or Franz Klein or something like that, it's impossible to look at that work without imagining that artist right next to you still painting. So there's that artist ghosts that's right next to you when you're in the presence of that work. And, and I think that's really special. That irritates some people, but I think it's really special to see. <laughs> that, that, that's why I wanted, that's why I wanted to hear your reaction to that, yeah. because it, you never know. Oftentimes, it, it's linked with the abstract expressionist movement. And you say it to people, and they kind of cringe. Yeah, and, and perhaps I'm a little bit more in the vein of the kind of second wave of abstract expressionism, leaning more toward the, the color field phase. Mm -hmm. um, because in my work, uh, my, you know, brush marks are actually very minimal. Yeah. Um, my presence as an artist is, is you know, much more distant mm -hmm. uh, from one of my works. It's, it's a little bit more detached, like it's this thing from another reality and not the direct result of my movement. Mm -hmm. So. I don't think I'd fit into the kind of action painting Jackson Pollock or, uh, you know, Willem de Kooning or anything like that. I think I, I probably have a lot more in common with, you know, Motherwell or Rothko or Newman. Okay, good. Well, that brings me to my second question. Uh, could you talk a bit a little bit about Elegy to the U.S. Republic number five, which is uh, the work you have up in our space right now? And then it's in parentheses you have after Motherwell. Uh, is Motherwell a recurrent influence on your work? And if so, why? Um, I started off, I, th I think the first artist that, that really inspired me in terms of, you know, the, the philosophy behind what he was trying to do was Mark Rothko. Mm -hmm. And so at, at times my work has shared some similarities with his, but, you know, of course I don't want to just rip him off or anything like that. Um, Robert Motherwell and his philosophies and writings, I came a little bit later to that. I, I started reading more into that uh, during graduate school. And he did a series of works called uh, Elegy to the Spanish Republic, um, because, you know, Spain had become a republic, but it had been, uh, after the Civil War, it had been taken over by a fascist dictator, Francisco Franco. And so he did a very extensive 
a series of these and he was, you know, Spain was his subject matter ostensibly, but he was probably thinking about a lot of things that were going on in the U.S. as well. Um, you know, some of those things that we mentioned from World War II, where, you know, like people were being put into open air concentration camps. And if you were suspected of being a communist sympathizer, you might be brought before the House Un-American uh, Activities Committee, you know, before Congress and forced to answer for those types of beliefs. Uh, so, he was probably reflecting on, on what was going on in the U.S. as well. And in my series that uh, takes some inspiration from his, um, I'm very directly stating that, you know, I'm looking around at what's going on in this country and wondering what is happening. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well said. Um, oh, Meg, you're up. I just kind of want to talk to Sean about his process on how he paints. Since you, you mentioned that, you know, you're not an action painter, do you, do you still have that level of spontaneity or do you have a general plan when you get a new canvas or new panel and you just go to town on it? And I also want to talk about your, your darker palettes and what motivates you to use those darker palettes. Okay. Um, to answer the second question first, the, the <laughs> darker palette, that comes from that, that similar uh, pessimism that I've, I've mentioned. So um, I've, I, I had been using a lot of warmer tones in my work, like, you know, starting around 2009, 2010, uh, but gradually that moved more toward these kind of uh, blue blacks or greenish blacks, this kind of bruised appearance to a lot of the work. And lately I've been and reintroducing some of those warmer umbers and siennas again, but uh, the, the darker palette from that series that I did, the, the Elegies to the U.S. Republic, uh, and many other works from, from that time period, that's, that's kind of reflective of my uh, pessimism. Um, as far as the process goes, there is a certain element of, of spontaneity in it. Um, a lot of times I have an idea of the overall mood that I want to create, um, the overall shapes that are going to be included. <clears throat> with that uh, elegy series there are these uh, kind of vertical elements and that was all done very spontaneously i just started painting and then you know saw what what you know needed to be added to help balance it out uh, and then with um the the process it involves you know layer after layer of these very thin glazes of paint and with each layer i manipulate it in some way either by you know uh, adding water to it or stirring in other pigments, other paints. And uh, that can be very spontaneous and unpredictable as well. So some of the, the, some of my paintings do have a little bit more energy depending on how much energy I'm, I'm putting into each layer. So sometimes I'm very forcefully throwing water at it, but other times I'm just kind of very gently drizzling water into that surface and then letting it move in a more, uh, you know, fluid, gentle way. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the process with the layer after layer after layer, um, that, you know, I, I have a general kind of game plan in many cases, but the actual end results are unpredictable because it kind of relies on how the water is going to move and evaporation and sedimentation and all of these very kind of natural processes uh, that I use. So it's, there, there is a subject there. It's not just a painting about nothing. I usually start with some kind of intention, uh, but 
ultimately the, the end results, they do end up surprising me as well. And that can be frustrating, but it can also be very exciting when something turns out uh, very well. You know, if you know exactly what your painting is going to look like before you start, then why go through with it? Very cool. Well, since you also seem to like some subject matter that is pessimistic, as you put it, um, is this pandemic influencing any new work that's probably, you know, a big pessimistic thing looming all over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've kind of joked that um, artists like my wife, Sidra Kaluska, she, she focuses on, you know, really embracing the beauty of, you know, sometimes even just common everyday things that we might not pay attention to. Um, artists who have really been trying to channel that beauty, they might find themselves you know, having a very difficult time working during uh, this kind of pandemic. Um, to someone like me that's been trying to, you know, warn people of the things that have been going on, uh, this is just kind of like, see, I've been telling you. You know, there, there are people now who are talking about, you know, going back to normal. Well, normal wasn't very good. And the pandemic has really exposed the, the shortcomings of how we've been running things, how we've been doing things. So, to a certain extent, um, the situation these days kind of, you know, validates some of what I've been trying to convey to people. Uh, but on the other hand, um, it does still affect me too, even though I felt like I had very little to lose before, you know, in fact, I, I had even more than I thought. You know, I lived a pretty simple life before, you know, a big uh, event, a big day out would be to go, you know, poke through Goodwill and see if I could find a, a movie or a CD that I didn't have or something. And these days I can't even do that. So um, that is difficult even for someone who has, you know, started off as pessimistic as I am. So it, it is a little bit hard to build up the motivation um, because there's a kind of heightened sense of meaninglessness these days. But um, I've, I have been working on some new things, but very much in the same vein as, as what I've been doing, just kind of a gradual, you know, evolution, not really a, a, a big shift. Right. It seems that most artists are either like, yeah, I'm really motivated or like, no, nah, I'm just kind of doing my own thing right now. <laughs> Got a lot going on. <laughs> yeah. I will move into Delise. And Delise and I actually met when I was an undergrad and she took an oil painting class at Randolph College. Um, so it's been fun seeing her more and more work as I've worked with this job. I've seen her work change quite a bit too, so it's cool to have you here. Thanks, Meg. Yeah. Uh, uh, Delise, it is fun, and, and Delise comes to our figure drawing classes when we were able to have those. And, yes, those are great. Uh, that was, and did some some great ones of me as the model and my skeleton. But I couldn't, I couldn't resist getting my skeleton out. So uh, I love those ones I did of you. Oh, I know those are absolutely fantastic. Um, so much fun. So thank you for being a part of Riverviews, Elise. I'm grateful for Riverviews. I really am. Oh, thank you. Okay, my first uh, question for you is: uh, You're not only a painter, but you're a cellist. Uh, so 
in um, I was reading some of your some of your statement and and you, you talk about how music plays a role in your painting could you talk a little bit about uh, about this and does sheltering sky the piece you have here at Riverviews reflect that relationship oh that's an interesting question um, well I, I will say that I think since my career was in music and um, I always um, felt that visual art was something I wanted to pursue at some point. Um, one thing that I definitely can say is the same in both fields is practice. And I developed um, a pretty consistent practice habit when I was playing my cello all the time. And I, I feel like I would have to say that I'm still learning to be a painter and I suspect that that's going to be what I say until I die. As Pablo Casal said, somebody asked him when he was 85 why he was still practicing. And he said, I think I'm seeing some improvement. <laughs> and, and, and so I, I feel like that's, that's where I am and where I'll probably always be. Mm -hmm. And as far as Sheltering Sky, my, my big painting, um, I would say that there is a certain enjoyment I get out of repetition um, that reminds me of like the motives in a, in a composition that are repeated and elaborated. And I'm not only repeating shapes, but I'm also repeating variations on color. And I, I just love the process of painting. I, I could just sit and mix color at my palette and be happy. And, and I have spent time doing that. And um, I, I, have a little, I have a little book where I kind of keep track of, of what my color combinations are. But I never really go back and, and read, read those or refer to them. It's, it's just the process of doing it that I enjoy. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, because so, so, you know it's it's always fun to look at the history, uh, art history, and and see the painters who were influenced by music, like Kandinsky. Kandinsky, exactly. You know, and and how when you go and and look at their work, you can see the music there. And so I have to admit, when um, I read a little bit about you and um, revisited your painting, I was like, sure enough, there's the, the music. <laughs> I was like, sure, there's the rhythm, there's the repetition, there's, you know, the flow that, that, that you see in music. So um, I was like, boy, there, there it is. So, oh, well, I'm glad you saw that. Yes, absolutely. Well, the other thing I think that is important to me is, is being outside. And I also think my work is optimistic. And that doesn't mean that I'm always happy. Um, but being outside makes me happy. And so during this pandemic, I have been able to continue to plein air paint. Um, I was going to have my very first plein air workshop in the end of March, which I had to cancel because I was going to lend people some equipment and I, it just didn't seem like it was going to work. But um, I'm going to try to do that again in 2021. Great. So I'm looking forward to that. Well, the plein air was part of my question actually on uh, 
Uh, I'm sure sheltering sky being so big was not painted plein air, but it would be very impressive if you actually said yes. Uh, <laughs> and what what difference is there for you to have that opportunity to be outside doing plein air versus a bigger canvas when you have to kind of be inside using references? Well, you know, I actually did a plein air piece that was eight by ten of of sheltering sky, and I expanded that. I, I, I was, and I want to give a shout out to VCCA, the Virginia Center for Creative Arts, because that is where that painting began, the, the big one, because that studio, I, I, I can paint big at home, but I can't step back far enough to see what I'm doing. Right. So to, to have that opportunity um, has made a huge difference in my development. But I did start that image as a plein air piece. And I feel like it helps me see. It helps me appreciate nature for one thing, but to be able to actually understand values and light, which is an important idea that I'm interested in, um, is a painful process. It's, it's, it's all wrong. Your eyes are fooling you all the time. I mean, and then when I, you know, I do my little plein air paintings and they have a certain freshness that I like, but I'm not interested in realism per se. So I take that and improvise on it, I guess, when I'm in the studio. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what the studio allows. I know even Monet did that. They're just realistic. So, so everybody thinks that, oh, Monet went out and he only painted it out and uh, no, he didn't. He would bring, bring the work back to the studio. Uh, could you talk a bit about your process? Like, how do you find the, the areas that, that really intrigue you? What is it about a setting that you say, I have, to, I have to spend? How long does it take you to do a painting on average? Well, Sheltering Sky actually took me a couple of years because um, I repainted it okay. recently. In the beginning, I actually um, had this part in the middle where, where I had these big rooftops that were like geometric shapes. And I, I had the title for that painting as Western Settlement. And I thought, yeah, it, it started out as a, as a view of a landscape in Colorado, but the, the houses were not the important part for me. Mm -hmm. It was the sky that was the important part for me. So I repainted the middle and emphasized the sky and, and de-emphasized the middle ground. Um, but the, the thing about plein air painting is I'm kind of a weenie. I, there, there's, there's a guy, um, Carl Rungius, and, and I think he was German, but he, he painted in the Canadian Rockies. And he would have black flies all over him. It would be freezing cold. Um, I really am not that tough. And I, and I also worry about being on private land and all that stuff. So I'm frequently painting in national parks or I'm painting in gardens, public gardens, or I'm painting in my own backyard. Um, and so, th so that, that's the limitation that I am willing to live with. I also, I'm an introvert, so I don't really want a lot of people around me, but I force myself to participate in plein air events. Mm -hmm. it's, it's weird. It's like a combination of an athletic 
thing and, uh, and you know, trying to win prizes and people watching you paint, which all of that is not comfortable for me, but it makes me be a better painter because I'm around people that are really good at it. And it, it makes me strive to be that good, so. Do you do a lot of uh, preliminary sketch work or do you just? I use, yes, I, I usually do a thumbnail. Um, I don't like to do a lot of preliminary sketch work. I will do sketching. I think, I think sketching is important, but it's not sketching right before a painting. I like to be a little bit more impulsive when I started painting. Mm -hmm. But I, I found that when, if I'm gonna do a plein air painting, I need to have a, a strong composition before I start. So I will do several thumbnails, you know, quick five minute sort of black and white things. And, and then I, um, and then I'll start painting. Yes, because your, your time is limited when you're, when you're doing plein air. How do you decide on your lighting? Because lighting is always changing. It's, it's, it's a moving, transforming um, entity. How do you find your moments to capture? You, you really have to work fast. <laughs> you do have to work fast. And it's, it's what gives it that impressionistic quality, I think, because especially if you've got light on a hard surface like a building, that is changing moment by moment. Mm -hmm. um, and usually that raking light is the most interesting light. So I, I try to get my lights and shadows down, you know, within 15 minutes. And, and that's why it's, it's good to work small. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can, you can, you can cover, more, cover more territory quickly. But as not being a plein air painter, but being in a studio with one, I love to watch Rodney come and bring the work back to his studio and tweak it. It's like, he'll go out and he'll do a piece on site and then he'll come back into the studio and he'll refine it for a couple of days. Do you do that as well? Um, yes, I think, I think I've been told it's better to be like 80% done when you leave than to keep working when your life has changed. But I don't like to refine my little ones too much. Um, if there's something really wonky, you know, like there's, you know, there's an edge that's not straight or a window that's super crooked or something like that, I, I will, it'll bug me. But other than that, I don't want to, I don't want it to be too refined. Well, you mentioned the VCCA, the, um, it's up in Amherst County, it's an artist residency. Uh, and I know you've studied out in the Southwest. So what are some artists who have really motivated your work to evolve or what have you adopted from doing those residencies? Oh, well, you know, I, I have to say I'm totally honored that Jeffrey Cudlin recognized my work because one of the things that's sort of intimidating when you go to BCCA is there, there are these professors from MICA. There are these artists that you know are on sabbatical from teaching and they are so um, interesting. And they're also very, um, 
encouraging because I guess maybe because they are teachers, but um, I feel like it's opened up. It's uh, somebody told me, and maybe it was um, Michael Tweary um, told me that going to these residencies is like going to graduate school because you're in a community of serious artists who are eating lunch and dinner together and discussing art all the time. And some of them are writers and some of them are, are composers. And there's so much cross-pollination in the conversation. So I would say um, I've just met so many. And it's not, it's not the same as taking a class or being in a workshop. It's, it's more um, being with colleagues. It's, it's been really, uh, I guess it's given me more confidence. Mm -hmm. oh, excellent. Um, has the pandemic influenced your work? Will we, will we see any uh, pandemic pieces coming out uh, in the future? You know, I think the world outside is more beautiful because of the pandemic. You don't see jet um, contrails in the sky anymore. I feel like the sky looks brighter. And I will say the national parks, I was just hiking in Shenandoah last weekend, they're pretty crowded now because people are anxious to get out. And it is a place where you can be with people um, and get some fresh air and talk. Um, but I feel like nature's kind of getting a break. I hope that's true. Um, so no, I'm still, I'm still optimistic. I have to say, you know, I, I, I do feel like um, the days are long sometimes and um, it's, it's easy to feel you know, like you're um, too much alone, even for an introvert. But, but I think my painting is, is continuing, you know, and I've got more time to do that now. I, all my plenary events were canceled too. Mm -hmm. And I had a residency in Ireland that was canceled. So oh. lots of time, lots of time to paint. I wonder if your colors will become brighter. Oh, maybe. I don't know, we're, we're just gonna have to see. <laughs> All right, you all, that's all the questions we have for you all. But if there's a question you all want to ask each other or anything you want to ask us, now's the time to do that. I just wanted to say thank you very much for the space, the opportunity. Um, again, I feel very privileged to have seen it in person. Um, got to meet Meg and, and, and had a lovely visit, and it's been great working with her. So. I just wanted to say thank you uh, to the both of you for this opportunity. Oh, no. Thank you all for yeah. participating. I mean, I, I think what, one of the things that the, the pandemic has, has really brought home in that we can't do as much as we usually do. We can't do the outreach that we usually do. But it does bring home, I think, the importance of community art spaces like Riverviews. I mean, it's, it's just, we're, we have had several, we've tried to keep open. Um, we've tried to continue uh, inviting guests and having guests. And so many people have said to us, just thank you for being here. You yeah, know? definitely. I'd, I'd like to thank Riverviews, of course. And, you know, really the City of Lynchburg has been pretty good to me. You know, I've had some good experiences with uh, a few galleries out, down there. I've even gotten to jury a show at the Lynchburg Art Club. 
so uh, thanks to you and thanks to you know the people of Lynchburg. Oh, well, thank you. We're trying. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't the, we pandemic, all? the pandemic is not making it easy, but we're trying. No. Well, I also want to thank you, but I am really happy to hear Lake and Sean say such nice things about Lynchburg. And I feel like Riverviews is one of those gems right downtown. And I'm glad to hear that people from outside of town feel that it's valuable and that it's a a, a neat addition to our community. Oh, most artists, um, since we do have a lot of artists from out of town come here, and the minute they walk into that gallery, their jaws drop and they're just yeah. like, this exists. <laughs> it does exist and it exists here in Lynchburg. Um, we're just seeing fewer and fewer spaces um, like like the the Craddock Terry Gallery, those those spaces are just disappearing. So um, it's always exciting to to see an, an artist walk into that space. The last show it happened with the artist from Baltimore um, and the D.C. area, just walking in and being like, "Oh my gosh, <laughs> this space exists." So yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, before I let you all go. Uh, where can folks find your art? Uh, if you have anything to plug, like a next show or a next opportunity, feel free to do so. You can do it any order, really. Well, um, I have a show this, this month at the Academy. So I'm taking my work down today. Yay! Very cool. Yay. Um, <laughs> oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, okay, thank you. Sorry. Uh, if people want to see any more of my work or see any kind of updates, um, I do have a Facebook page and uh, you can also go directly to my website, which is scwhiteside.net. I have a new installation coming up this weekend. Um, there's a space here in Memphis called Crosstown Arts. It's in an old Sears, reconverted uh, Sears building. And I'm doing, there's these white uh, fluorescent lights there's 28 of them and i have proposed and been accepted I'm, I'm encasing them in colored gels in an arrangement um so that'll be up for about six weeks starting this weekend totally new territory so please uh wish me the best of luck um it's gonna the, be great the potential for failure is there so but um We'll it's see. always there. <laughs> yeah, but that, it's, it's more there when it's new territory for you. So, um, but I, I'm, I'm excited and nervous about it. So it'd be fun. Great. Well, thank you all. Thank you all. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for, for giving us your time and energy um, and sharing a little bit more about your work. It's, it's the jury show. We always have so many pieces and um, and, and fantastic work, but we never get to hear kind of any in-depth um, artist statements or talks about the specific pieces. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again for listening in. This is the last Coffee with Curators for 2020. We will be back in 2021 with our exhibiting artists and maybe a few artists from the Reviews community for next year's episodes. Take care, y'all.